Thanks very much, Alex. And um, ladies and gentlemen, my name's Ross Kent. I'm with uh, MLC Asset Management, so named since the 1st of October. Uh, and uh, I'm responsible for our institutional sales and marketing uh, uh, across the world. Uh, alongside me, we have some uh, practitioners uh, who are going to help us understand a little bit about the uh, methodology that each of those go through in uh, constructing equity portfolios. On uh, my far left, your far right, uh, Greg Barnes from Sun Super, who is the uh, head of listed equities at, uh, at the firm. Uh, Leslie Mao from Willis Towers Watson. And, and Leslie, if you don't mind, I'm going to get you to wear your implemented consulting hat this afternoon. Um, I know that's a nice new hat for you, so uh, um, we'll focus on that. And on my immediate left uh, is Ronan McCabe, who's the head of portfolio management at Mercer. Um, I'm going to start, if I may, with you, Greg, and, and a bit of a sort of a T-ball question to start off with. Could I have you just explain a little bit about the investment beliefs at uh, Sun Super that perhaps shape uh, some of your thinking on the equities portfolio? Yeah, thanks, Ross. <coughs> so within the uh, listed shares, the equities part of the, the portfolio, I think there's a couple of key beliefs and philosophies that uh, instructed us um, in terms of how we, we built the portfolios. The, the first one is that we, we start from a, a risk perspective. We think that as investors in uh, public markets, we get paid for taking risks. So if we think about the risks that we can access uh, as investors and build the portfolio around those risks, we get paid for taking those risks. Um, the other one is that we think that um, skill is very scarce. Uh, markets are, are highly efficient and uh, the ability for equities managers to outperform in those markets is uh, is very rare and as a result of that, that skill is, is very scarce and therefore it's very expensive uh, and within our portfolio it, it, it really only accounts for a small part of the, the risk that we take. And then when you broaden that out, there's a couple of other key considerations. I think that um, we really want to be able to access the best managers globally. Um, so we tend to have an external stance. We're looking for the best managers around the world to, to manage our money for us. And that's a particularly important consideration at the moment when we have a lot of our peers starting to build uh, internal capabilities. We have, we have, through one of our endowments, through our size, we have access to some of the best managers globally. We also have access to some of the best advisors globally uh, to allow us to engage with, with those managers. And then just circling back to risk, I think that um, we, we really think about portfolio construction, in particular risk, um, in terms of portfolio construction. Uh, thinking about return is quite intuitive for people, for investors, and therefore risk tends to be a, a secondary consideration. Uh, we think that it's really critical and we put it right at the heart of what we do in terms of our portfolio construction. So that's a snapshot of some of the key beliefs that really inform how we, we go about our business. Thanks, Greg. Um, Leslie, could I turn to you? This, so same question, the investment beliefs uh, that lie behind the uh, composition of the Willis Towers Watson portfolio? Sure. Um, I think we share a lot of common points uh, with Greg here. Um, first of all, active management is very difficult. It's, it's hard to accomplish. Um, so uh, in order to do that, you need a uh, differentiated approach. Um, there are genuinely skillful managers in the market, but difficult to find. So 
you need to have your internal competency and you need to devote your energy and time to, to find these managers. Um, but we, our, our belief set also take a further step. Um, we, we don't want to uh, settle with whatever the manager of, offer off the rack. Um, we, uh, we think the best way to access manager skills uh, is, is through their uh, most, well, the highest conviction stock they can put forward to us. Uh, we would be very happy to leave out any of uh, so-called fillers, uh, low conviction stocks for risk management purpose. Um, then in order to um, put all these managers together, uh, another belief is that we need a uh, risk management overlay to properly put these uh, uh, highly volatile and high conviction uh, portfolio sleeves together in order to get a smooth ride. Um, then the last thing, as importantly, is cost. We don't, you know, everything comes with a price and we don't want to uh, pay up too much. Otherwise, if manager takes away all the alpha, we might as well settle with uh, passive. Um, and, but we, at the same time, we don't want to squeeze manager too much. Uh, you know, everyone needs to live, so uh, we want to be fair to every party. So there is a limit, um, and we look to build a long-term relationship with managers in order to achieve that win-win uh, outcome. Thank you. And finally, Ronan, your turn now. Uh, a few of your beliefs. <coughs> so yeah, at Mercer, similar to two guys before me, um, Active management is very much one of kind of our core investment beliefs. So we do believe where it's possible, uh, we do believe in active management and you know, skill is scarce and skill is difficult to uh, to find, but we do believe that um, if you, you can find it and you build a portfolio, you, you, can, um, you can outperform. Uh, risk management is another kind of key. So <coughs> similar to what Leslie and Greg were saying beforehand, you know, every decision you make, any prudent investor should be doing that of risk. Like investment is very much about risk management. You know, it's not just about return chasing. So that kind of forms a kind of uh, key part um, of our, our beliefs as well. In terms of how we think about then using those beliefs and kind of building portfolios, the way we think about um, in Delegate Solutions in Mercer about um, equities is we, we subdivide it into like global equities, global small cap, emerging market equity. Um, we have an asset allocation to global low vol uh, through, through, through different uh, lenses. In Australia, um, Australian kind of large cap or best ideas, small cap, um, and kind of some other ideas around that. Within each of those subcategories of equities, we have multi-manager approaches. So if I think of something like uh, global equities, we have five managers. So how we think about building that portfolio, or that we call them building blocks, that allocation for clients to global equities, is it's not just about the individual manager. It's about what I'm concerned about and what I say to the PMs is, it's very much about what's the return, what's the objective of that building block, what's the risk, what are we hoping for that building block to achieve through times. Then we go out and we, you know, we, we, we look for what we believe is best in class managers out there to fill different parts of, um, of, of, of basically building up that portfolio or that building block, so to speak. We look very much through, uh, internally through different factor lenses as well. So we're very conscious at all point in time, our tilt to value, quality, momentum, if there's, a, if there's inherent growth bias. Um, generally, like, you know, <coughs> I have to kind of correct it through time, but we're not too concerned that, you know, if a manager does underperform with the overall global overseas share, for example, or Aussie shares, the overall building block outperforms, it meets its return for the appropriate level of risk. That's not a huge concern. The issue more so is if you hire a manager and you expect them to do well, such and such in a certain environment and they don't, that is kind of a bigger concern. And that kind of, again, comes back to how we think about risk management, one of our beliefs. Thank you. Um, so just 
synthesizing all of that, I'm guessing, Greg, you've possibly got the highest allocation out of the three gentlemen here to more passive strategies. Could I ask you to give us a bit of a, an estimate of the, maybe for the global equity portfolio of the current percentage in passive? Yeah, yeah no, it's 50%. Uh, it's so we have a 50% uh, passive component in the, the national shares portfolio. Yes. Then we have another 20% um, uh, systematic uh, styles. Uh, and that comprises, um, you know, mostly style factors. Uh, and then we have uh, the remainder is, is idiosyncratic. Um, and the reason we have such a large uh, component of, of passive in the portfolio is that, again, coming back to starting from a risk perspective, most of the return that we can access as uh, equity investors is, is beta risk. That's most of the return that any manager will give you, and we can access that, that beta risk uh, very effectively, very efficiently, and very cheaply through not only passive, but other uh, forms of uh, investment management as well. Um, and it also helps us from a, from a fee perspective. Yep. Um, you know, we can access it at a very low fee, and those sort of savings we can redeploy uh, into more active strategies where we think we can identify skills. And Leslie and, and Ronan, I'm guessing that your allocations to perhaps smart beta or quantitative portfolios are significantly less than, than Greg's, or am I wrong? We, um, so it depends on what clients really want. So when we design our equity portfolio, we design them as building blocks mm. um, for clients who truly believe in fundamental active, who, has the, who have the uh, aspiration for long-term alpha generation, you know, a 100% fundamental active portfolio um, serves the purpose. Um, however, take the US market, for example, um, some of the clients there are super fee sensitive and super active risk sensitive. In that case, we actually fairly similar to Greg's uh, approach where, you know, percentage wise, let's say we put one third into passive, one third into a smart beta uh, multi-factor and uh, the remaining into the best idea fundamental active mm. um, for exactly the same reason, risk and fee. Yeah, like, <clears throat> um, you know, while we do believe in active management, it is very much dependent on what clients want. So there are certain clients that are super um, fee sensitive. So in situations like that, where we believe that, you know, a passive might be a better solution for that particular client, you know, we will look at look look at passive. Um, there's different blends we can have between passive and active as well, and we can kind of mix things around uh, quite a bit. Um, as I said. You know the way we look at it. You know, going forward, we're probably going to focus a lot more on kind of more smart beta and kind of that sort of concepts. But the way we do it is we very much kind of analyze our portfolios on a very regular basis, both here and as well as globally, in terms of through different focal lenses. So we're kind of very much conscious at all points in time how the portfolios are positioned in terms of their tilts, not just to kind of name value or growth or quality or momentum, but what they actually mean. We very, very specific metrics within within momentum, within growth, within quality of how we think about portfolios. We spend a lot of time here and global, um, globally, kind of you know make those sort of debates and kind of understanding what the tilts are. But you know, there will do could very well be a case going forward where we probably have more systematic factor in smart beta exposure, and that's more just part of it's driven by clients to a certain degree. We still believe active works, um, you know, where it suits the clients. Fee budget and um, fees are coming down. There's also what we're seeing at a more multi-sector level is where sometimes if you can, you know, you, you weigh it up that if you think you can get bigger bang for your buck in certain private assets or in different strategies, you might think about reallocating some money out of active into passive, that fee savings and recycling back into maybe private 
private assets, and that's something we're looking at. Yeah. <coughs> Maybe um, just to pivot to a, in a different direction, and, and there's an opportunity here um, to take a polling question, I hope. Um, and I'm looking towards the uh, back of the room. Is Are we set up to do it? Yep, you beauty. Um, so uh, if you haven't been here this morning, um, the site to land on is slido, S-L-I-D-O.com, and the code you'll be asked to put in is ES, Recordy Summit, 2019, and um, the question we're asking you is whether or not you're using an after-tax performance benchmark uh, for your managers at the moment. And uh, see how the votes are coming in. We've got a few early booths reporting. So it's a fair few on the none. All right, so it's about 50-50, roughly. Um, Greg, I know uh, you at uh, Sunsuper have, have looked at um, implementing uh, after-tax benchmarks to make sure that the incentives are aligned. Uh, could you give a little explanation of how you've gone about implementing that? Yes, yeah, so I think, um, I guess if you step back and, and think about where we sort of started this, this process, uh, at Sunsuper we've moved from being um, uh, a, a, a tax credit situation to a tax paying. and. Um, I think a lot of other large asset owners have gone through that transition recently. But one of the, one of the disconnects is that uh, our managers live in a pre-tax world, so their um, performance fees and uh, their returns are measured on a, a pre-tax basis, where our members live in a, a post-tax world. Uh, the returns they receive are, are after tax. So there was a, a misalignment, and those two, uh, two issues really led us to move to a, an after-tax uh, uh, performance benchmark. So as opposed to a, an off-the-rack uh, after-tax benchmark, which is a kind of estimated universal measure of, of after-tax outcomes, we've moved to a specific uh, after-tax performance benchmark for each of our individual managers. So it takes into account their uh, uh, starting tax positions at mm. the capital gains tax level and and so on, and, and generates a unique benchmark taking into account all of the relative tax uh, effects for that, that, particular, that particular manager. Um, so we've used a specialist after-tax uh, performance benchmark provider to provide that information for, for us, and we've just literally gone through the process of backdating that to the beginning of the financial year last year. Mm -hmm. So that, that data is now available to us. And I think a couple of interesting observations for us um, were firstly that uh, even, you know, even amongst our stock, stock pickers, our highly idiosyncratic managers, uh, a lot of them were not thinking in an after-tax space. You know, it, they were probably paying a little bit of lip service to it, but it wasn't really deeply embedded in the, the, their processes. So, for example, uh, you know, in, Australian, in the Australian situation, things like franking credit denial, missing out on capital gains yeah. tax discount and so on. A lot of them would tell you that it was embedded in their valuation process, but when you started to peel back the layers, it was clear that it, it wasn't. It was, it was something of an afterthought. I think the other interesting observation to share was that um, whilst we do have uh, half of, close to half of our Aussie shares portfolio in a, in a passive manager, our initial thinking was that you know, because they were replicating the benchmark, there probably wouldn't be much benefit to moving them to an after-tax uh, uh, measurement. But what we've found, and, and particularly last year, where there was such a, a, a large number of uh, 
large um, off-market buybacks, instructing that passive manager to participate in those buybacks led to very significant uh, after-tax benefits for our, our members. You know, the, the BHP and Rio buybacks were, were quite significant and, and made a significant contribution to after-tax performance. And I think, you know, meeting with that, that passive manager, the change in mindset, the change in thinking as they've started to consider things from an after-tax perspective has been quite significant, yeah. you know, in terms of uh, how they rebuild the benchmark exposure after they've tendered their shares, yeah. um, how they can actually start to uh, flex around that in terms of positioning themselves to um, rebuild exposure to those particular securities um, ahead of the event uh, yeah. and so on. So even from a from a, a passive manager exposure, there are quite significant benefits that can be achieved at an after-tax level. But really, you know, and those those returns then flow through to our members yeah, in, yeah. in after-tax uh, after-tax outcomes. So it's been a very interesting process and, uh, and journey. Cool, um, Leslie Ryan, any comments to make? I've got a I've got a, a specific question for each of you. Coming, but uh, anything on the tax? Yeah, no, it's similar as well. <coughs> um, at Mercer, we're very much, you know, especially for domestic equities and domestic equity managers, it's very much kind of conscious of. We think about a net, net outcome for our members, and for clients, and you know, we we, de we have those conversations and how we think about that. And you know, our managers, when they do go to trade, they are very much, you know, we're asking them. They're very much uh, aware and cognizant of what the tax okay. implications are for yeah. a trade. So yeah. it's something that we, 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 we have a third-party provider that you know we look we do all that analysis as well. Well, all I can say is thanks to ATO. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Leslie, one of the comments that was really intriguing about your your beliefs, um, and you talked about the focus on the genuine high conviction ideas of the managers you're wanting to employ, and what you you specifically mentioned the. Uh, the um, your desire to avoid filler stocks and and really to move towards more customized um, best ideas portfolios could, could you give us a, a an example of how that's been going with the, the interaction with the managers you've been dealing with has it been yes. resistance or or interest um, it depends um, mm. so I understand in the market some managers are strongly against that idea mm. uh, they believe that their job is to uh, deliver a, a smooth um, alpha profile to their end investors yeah. um, as if they were the only exposure in the investor's portfolio. Um, but that's often not the case. Um, so when we talk to um, individual managers, um, there are, um, you know, that, that's one uh, potential outcome, but there are two other potential scenarios. One is uh, take the US market, for example, some of the boutique managers there they started with highly concentrated portfolios from day one. Mm. So if you look into even their off-the-rack portfolios um, strategies, it's, it contains probably no more than 20, sometimes just 15 or 10 stocks. Mm. Um, uh, uh, we, we, are, we, are, we are amazed that they, they, they still survive. Um, so <laughs> there are clients, uh, investors in the market who like that kind of strategies, but more often, um, we, we meet managers who uh, typically offer a portfolio, you know, in a global equity space, 50 to 100 uh, stocks. Um, but when you drill down either through uh, attribution or just stock discussion, often you find out that the, the, the real number of stocks that contribute to the final results, typically no more than 20. Mm. 
Um, it also has to do with uh, perhaps people's brain power. You know, how many stocks, you know, details can you remember, keep in, in, in your mind, and how, how much cross comparison can you make as an individual or as a team. Um, so um, um, another aspect also interestingly, um, some of the managers do their personal accounts, um, um, well, uh, retirement accounts. Yeah. Um, so if you ask them, well, how do you invest your own money? <laughs> they often say, well, I, I have co-investment here, but on the side I have like 10, 20 stock portfolio for myself. Of course, a compliance approved. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, so with these managers, um, the high conviction um, concept, the, the approach uh, resonates with them. Yeah. It's not difficult to convince them that this is the best way to go. And they are more than happy to offer that to you as long as they understand you understand them. Um, and there is an element of risk tolerance as well. The reason often they don't give out that kind of product to the market is business risk. Is business risk yeah. So you need to take that into account. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and Ronan, um, you mentioned the, the role of risk management and um, uh, it, it didn't escape my attention that you're not from these parts. No, uh, and <laughs> you, that you might have had some experience uh, operating in another part of the world. Um, I, I wonder if you might, um, if you can, give yeah. a little bit of uh, your observations on the use of overlay and, and other strategies, uh, both in your previous life and, and, and uh, maybe now at Mercer to, to yeah. help uh, manage the overall portfolio risk. Yeah, good observation. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm previous, I, I moved down here about seven months ago um, with Mercer. Uh, prior to that, um, I spent about four years at Irish Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, so when I joined in, actually joined from, uh, I used to be upside of Tev, I used to be on the asset management side for many years. So when I joined um, the Irish Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, at this stage we'd just come through an IMF bailout, obviously a horrendous recession, uh, property prices peaked the trough for about 70, 80%. So it was quite interesting in, in people in Sydney and Melbourne talking about property prices um, and all the deleveraging involved in that, so um, devastation. So the Sovereign Wealth Fund, which had been in existence for about 15 years, the political, uh, the powers that be decided to kind of uh, re kind of re reorient it to a different direction to actually more strategic investments in Ireland. So when I joined in October 14, m my remit was to manage the global portfolio, which is about 95% of the assets. Over the next 10, 15 years, that would change and a lot more of that capital would be reinvested into private investments in Ireland across venture capital, private equity, direct and indirect lending, infrastructure. Um, agriculture, a lot of strategic investments. So our, our concern was we had a legal mandate to deliver a certain amount of wealth creation while this happened. At the same time, the global portfolio, which is predominantly liquid in many cases, um, was very much, uh, you know, it was a liquid portfolio. The way we thought about it, we'd so short a liquidity option to the private portfolio that could be called against us at any time. So we were, when I inherited, it was about 50% in equities, passive as well as active equities and we had quite a large um, active overlay, so an option downside protection. So at one stage we were, on certain days, we were the biggest traders of Eurostox options in Europe, um, and one of the biggest tradings, traders of S&P options in, um, in, in Chicago. Um, so why we were so concerned around uh, downside protection, uh, and the idea was that we were very, very aware of that if we had a 50% drop, in market value, and um, so obviously 50% of our capital was in global equities, which was basically 95% of your risk. If you had committed 
to a lot of private investments like venture capital funds, private equity funds, certain strategic infrastructure projects that might take 15 or 20 years in the making. And you had a 50% drop in your equity portfolio. Um, you know, it's, it has a material outcome because effectively in a situation like this, that you've, you will have the capital called against you on the private side of the portfolio. It was interesting as an aside when Greg's um, on the previous presentation talking about the, the math of compounding. We used to be paranoid about this. So people very well much know that, you know, if you have a 50% drop in your portfolio, you need 100% returns to get back to your base case scenario. The way we used to think about it was, if you think about, when you go into an investment, you might say you take an investment over a 10-year time frame and you have a 5% per annum return you expect. If you have a 50% drop in market value in the first year, you need 8% per annum to get back to par. But you, you don't want to get back to par in 10 years. So to get back to what your business case at the outset was 10 years later, you need 14% per annum. That's why you need to protect downside protection so much. So ultimately what we did is we restructured the whole portfolio. We went out, we, um, we reduced the equity allocation, we unwound the derivative positions. We went out um, and we effectively dropped the equity down to about 20% with some kind of equity color strategies in. We invested in a lot of buy and maintain credit, which by themselves had a lot of credit spread not the rates component of credit it has huge equity beta and expects some high yields. So we used to monitor that quite a lot. Um, and we then had a lot of kind of liquid up and a lot of kind of hedge funds and fund of fund strategies that were effectively giving us low equity beta um, which protected the portfolio. We we're also very much aware of the commitments we'd made on the private side of the portfolio, venture capital, et cetera, had inherent equity beta against that as well. So we were very much kind of aware of those kind of risks. But what we weren't doing was we weren't kind of committing that if we committed to a venture capital fund, a couple of hundred million and the drawdown of capital is over five years, we weren't sticking that in public markets waiting for that to happen because again, if you have a collapse in that, that's a very situation where private managers, because they see opportunity, will want the capital call against you. And we saw this firsthand in Ireland during, the, during, during and after GFC, but so many other sovereign wealth funds and asset owners around the world. So again, you need to kind of be aware about protecting that downside protection. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pause for a second and, and ask for any questions from the floor, um, either based on the subject you've already heard or observations you'd like to ask anyone. Thanks, Simon. Perhaps uh, to parrot Alex, your name and organisation. So Simon Hudson from Unisuper. Just, uh, I'm curious about, I mean, we're talking about a lot of uh, technical side of, um, of portfolio construction, but what about on the more left left field side, such as when you're building portfolios, building it with portfolio managers and their people, and so how do you view the organisation, so the mix between, say, large managers and, uh, and boutiques and how they've changed over time? What do you do when uh, one of the senior partners goes through an incredibly messy divorce or has... <laughs> Uh, which happens, and uh, things a bit more seriously when you get, uh, say, major health issues with, with children, et cetera, et cetera. Just how, because it, it happens a lot, and we, we certainly experience it with all our managers, just how, uh, how that comes into the equation. And, I mean, incredibly difficult from a risk management perspective, just, just how curious how you guys think about it. Maybe I would start with that. So, <clears throat> the way we think about building portfolios, if I, if I think of something like Aussie shares, for example, that, <clears throat> as I said, you know, we look at factors, so it's very much part of it, it's very much building the portfolio from a quantitative perspective, it's a multi-manager portfolio. There's a, that's kind of the science end of it. There's a whole other 
arc side of it. And I think it's really very much around getting into and understanding the managers, the processes, the team, the culture. I think there's, there's from my experience, you know, I, I have like eight to 10 key things that from my experience, best class managers, no matter what the jurisdiction, as class or anything, kind of fit into a certain mold. Um, so what we also are kind of trying to enhance it even further is very much the idea around um, reserve list managers. So this might be backup managers for every single manager you have. <coughs> this could be an, another active manager. You know, if you have manager A, manager B here is the backup manager. It could also be a plan B around that. If something happens, like the key, you know, the key person, the key uh, CIO or portfolio manager gets sick or needs to leave the firm straight away, the plan B could be we go straight to a transition manager. But again, have those levers in place that if you, if you need to pull them. In terms of also, you know, something that we've started looking at Mercer um, here, but also very globally as well, is around the idea of diversity. And it's not just diversity through gender diversity, obviously, which is a key part of, you know, how we think about teams. But, we, you know, there's a paper out recently where we very much kind of break it into cognitive and identity diversity. The identity diversity is your nationality, your, your gender, um, different things like this. Cognitive diversity could be very much about kind of your skill set, your academic backgrounds, your thinking styles, different things like this. And that's a lens that we will, you know, through time, kind of once we kind of build a framework around that, like the kind of thing that we will start kind of build, you know, our portfolio, think about our portfolios through something like that as well. So there's an art side of it, um, but, and there's a science side of it. The science side is kind of, it's not easy, but it's, you know, there's systems and there's plenty of things in place, but the art side of it is more through experience and trying to think differently and outside the box. Greg or Liz? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question, Simon. I think um, a couple of observations. We live in an ex-ante world. We don't know what's going to happen, but you know, like Ronan was saying, we look at a number of different aspects around managers. I think in the US, um, succession planning has been a key issue, and we've seen a number of uh, long-live managers go through a number of um, succession, you know, generational succession. So it's, you know, there's some role models to, to, to look at there. So transition of equity, you know, senior guys exiting, you know, so we can understand that process. Less so in Australia. One of our managers here, Maple Brown Abbott, have gone through arguably through a couple of uh, generations and, you know, have, have seemingly done it quite well. But, you know, speaking from bitter experience, uh, last year we were sacked by a manager, um, which was, a, was an interesting experience for us. And I think the situation there was we had a, a strong bench so we could move very quickly from, from one to the other. And then earlier this year, we had uh, a manager that essentially, a, a small boutique manager that, that ran, out of, ran out of capital. And um, again, we were able to move very quickly there, um, giving it to one of our other managers, so in specie and, and handling that process quite effectively. The other observation is that all of our, all of our agreements, uh, segregated mandate investment management agreements, uh, the assets never leave our vault. Um, you know, they're in our custody the whole time. So it's very easy, you know, I guess it's one of the, the tough things about the, the investment industry. It's a T plus one world. We can move from one to the other in a, in a day. So we, we're set up so that we can respond quickly. We've had experience, we know what to do. Um, but it's, you know, it's not a good thing to, to, to happen. You know, you're always gonna get some tough questions when it happens. Okay, um, so we've got a minute to go. Um, I, rather than ask another question from the floor, um, if you could rub the genie's lantern and have a magical Donald Trump tweet emerge overnight to best help your portfolios, um, what would it be? Interest rates going up, maybe. 
That would Rates going up? For probably great. wouldn't be a bad one. Oh, that, sorry, that's not the one you want. No, I think it would be, you know, a reasonable outcome. So, you know, a, a, a turning point in rates would probably be a, a reasonable outcome. Yeah. Leslie? Another delay in signing the trade treaty? You'd like another China? delay? Well, volatility is, is good. Yeah. <laughs> so we like volatility. Probably give us a good entry point. Yeah. Ronan? Yeah, I, th I think um, <coughs> either something in relation to Brexit, obviously being a European, um, there's obviously a lot of kind of geopolitical tensions in there. And um, I think that, you know, the opposite of what Les said, I think you probably need clarity. Yeah. I think the world needs clarity with the trade situation. So it's not just a China, um, US thing. I think like what's going on in Germany, like Germany's on the verge of recession. Yeah. Uh, so with that, that'll take down the Eurozone. So, <coughs> you know, um, what you will see then is on the back of that then is the Eurozone crisis we had in 2011. You'll see a second leg of that kick off yeah. if, unless the, the Chinese US trade tensions are, you know, that, that, that's going to happen. Everyone knows that. Not sure Twitter's going to let him have that many so. characters. But, so. uh, <laughs> all, right. all right. Thanks uh, to Greg, Leslie, and Ronan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.